our last speaker is Aziz Rana. Um, Aziz and Patrick collaborate, and I didn't even know it. Uh, um, so first, I'd like to say thank you to, to Asla and Sari and Susan for um, organizing this conference, and also to Joanna for doing all of the work in terms of the logistics of getting getting me and other folks here. It's uh, it's a very meaningful event to me, and I'm really pleased to be able to participate, though, as Lorenzo said, it's under circumstances that are quite bittersweet. Um, so I think what I'm going to do is just talk a little bit about uh, Patrick's work um, in my own scholarship, but then also Patrick as a, a mentor and friend. Um, and in a way, I feel like, though I actually met him for the first time also at the same critical race symposium here in in 2011, that I really met him on the page. And I met him on the page in the context of trying to figure out what I wanted to write as my dissertation. And I was trying to pull together a dissertation uh, project in 2002, 2003, especially against the backdrop of the Iraq War. And in part because of the politics of the time, I wanted to write about what I thought were like the big questions, and I still think they're the big questions. So, capitalism, empire, those are the things that I wanted to write about. And I also, um, part Kenyan, because of the fact that um, part Kenyan had an interest in, in African history, had taken a bunch of classes in African history, and so uh, the book in my mind that was really meaningful at that moment was uh, Mahmoud Ramdani, Citizen and Subject, and I wanted to do work that was on capitalism, empire, but that somehow placed the U.S., that reflected back on the U.S. and placed the U.S. in some kind of global dimension. And the truth is I was in a PhD program in an American political science department doing work in political theory and what's called American political development. So it's the kind of qualitative, historicist side of American politics. And there just wasn't a ton that I felt like I could hold on to. So most of the projects in political theory, and you know, I apologize to my own field, this is kind of this is a bit reductive. Um, felt like they were coming out of a set of debates from the '90s. So, you know, is the U.S. liberal or Republican? Are we should we think of our institutions as communitarian or or liberal again? Um, you know, what to make of roles in distributive justice? Uh, how to think about the, the the politics of identity and difference? How to think about theories of representation? I felt like none of these projects. You know, we're, we're sort of dealing with questions about power, struggle, conflict, competing interests, the things that, that kind of moved me. And to the extent that race is a category which um, was really significant for me, was being dealt with at all, it was through rubrics that I found basically unhelpful for figuring out my own, my own work. So if there was a global dimension, the global language that was the most common language was a language of post-colonialism. And I still think that my own work is totally influenced by post-colonial theory, so this is not meant as you know, a straightforward critique, but in the way in which post-colonialism was reflected back into the study of American politics, it was entirely as a way of thinking about there was a moment of colonization, that moment was transformed through independence projects, and so you're now in this period after the end of colonialism. And to the, in the ways in which the US might be connected is as perhaps the first you know, truly independent nation or as a defining anti-imperial project. So not in the terms that I was conceiving of it, you know, questions about hegemony and international police power, but as part of a tradition that might make America 
in the 19th century like India in the 1950s, which is you know, a deeply problematic and strange way of thinking about the US. And then to the extent that there are conversations about race and American political identity, the two big frames were one, um, work on what's commonly called the multiple traditions thesis. In other words, a recognition that there's this history of native expropriation, or there's a history of enslavement. But the thought is that these liberal elements in the American past are in a kind of uneasy mix with the liberal or emancipatory dimensions. That these two things kind of operate at the same time, but they're not mutually constituted. And in a way, what it felt to me is like this is a way of keeping uncontaminated the things in the US that both scholars and political commentators want to valorize. And then of course, the dominant language about race at that moment was a language about multiculturalism. Multiculturalism versus uh, you know, cosmopolitanism, how to think about the politics of recognition. All of these taken together were frames that reinforced what amounted to a kind of Whiggish or progressive story of the US experience. And it also seemed to presume the inherent liberalism of the US, maybe perhaps not of the founding, because they're like bad origins. But as American development emerged, there's something like inherently liberal and progressive about the project. And so I started looking around. I turned back to um, historiographic work in the 70s, particularly that had a kind of Marxist bent. And then I started looking for comparative examples and reading on Australia, so that was kind of like a breakthrough. Started reading about Australia as a way perhaps this might be useful in thinking about the US. Um, and it was through that that I just basically stumbled onto Patrick's work, not in a class, in the context of courses or scholarship that's presented to me through my dissertation program, but just following footnotes in other people's books. And especially that first book, um, Settler Colonialism, Transformations Anthropology, and that idea of uh, settler colonialism or invasion as structure, not event, became really eye-opening in a way that I think was eye-opening for a lot of people. And we'll probably get to this over the course of the rest of the conference. You know, ultimately, I came to have some issues with the presentation. Indeed, Patrick came to have issues with both the way that he wrote it and the way that it was taken on. But there were a number of things about the work that just really spoke to me. First, the settler colonial frame and especially this idea of invasion as structure, responded directly to the ways in which in the US, all of the things that are problematic get presented as a story of bad origins. Right? So there are things that happened in the past that are part of something that we have to atone for, we have to kind of be redeemed through, but they tell us nothing about the ongoing nature of our institutions. And for Patrick, the work was a way of saying, no, actually, we're not doing you know, genealogy is telling you about origins that are disconnected from the present. What we're doing is articulating the ongoing processes that sustain current and contemporary institutions, the things that make true emancipation, you know, very, very difficult. And that tied to the second thing, which is, you know, I always had a kind of, um, let's say, like, not exactly like Marxist sensibility, but a sort of a reflective interest in Marxism. And the kind of Marxism that I'd come across as a graduate student and as a student it was like Marx and Marxism as museum piece, as a little bit of like, you know, that old time religion. You have to figure out what, you know, what are the equations? Once we know the right equations, then we can understand how capital connects to X, Y, or Z. And, and here was really, at the end of the day, a deeply materialist um, account, but, in, you know, because of the centrality, for example, of land and labor and how we thought about the, the types of 
relations of oppression that mark different kinds of settler colonial projects. But a materialist account embedded in uh, you know, Marxist background that was living and breathing was able to sort of incorporate a variety of different kinds of complex commitments and think of race and class together. And that was, for me, it was like a breakthrough. It's like, oh, you know, a particular type of left political tradition has relevance for thinking both about scholarship and about politics, criticism. And then the third thing was this felt like, oh, this is social theory as it should be done. In other words, here was a theoretical lens that could talk about structure and agency, but change and continuity, that could talk about freedom and oppression, and that could provide both analytical tools to make sense of objective social conditions, but analytical tools that could then critique those social conditions as well. And all of it felt like a door that was opening. And so when I finished the book, I got in touch with Patrick. I, you know, I, I had to hunt down his contact information. Um, I knew nothing about his own personal background and the difficulties that he had in the context of the Australian Academy, and so I sent him an email. And the first email that I sent him, in fact, I was looking at it when I was thinking about the comments for today, uh, was the kind of email you send when you start at a job in the US and you're disciplined. In other words, it was like, dear Professor Wolf. Um, so already, given the fact that he had his own you know, issues in terms of Australian Academy is a kind of faux pas. And then it's like, my name is such and such. I am an assistant professor in such and such school. I've recently published this book. Um, your work has been important to my work. I'd love to be able to send you a copy. And the response he sent was basically like, you know, don't worry about all of, all of that stuff. Let's just talk. And we ended up having this kind of incredible exchange, initially over email. Um, where he was just a really generous reader. So he, I sent him the book, he read it immediately, he sent me back extensive comments. And his generosity, and this is a thing that became really clear over the time that I interacted with him, was a kind of enthusiasm. So one of his very first graduate students, Lynette Russell, um, described the way that he interacted with his students as, um, as a kind of enthusiastic supporter. And, <coughs> By that, what I, I take it to be is that he, he, was, he had criticism. So I could tell the things he didn't like in the project. I could tell the things that he thought were problematic. But he was really committed um, to supporting you figuring out like, what is the internal logic of your own work. In other words, extending the natural sort of intuitions behind the scholarship. And I think actually this has a lot to do with the fact that he wasn't disciplined. In other words, he came to academia late. He came to academia in the context of political activism. And he had a deeply plural approach to methodology. So the work, you read the work. I described it as social theory, but it's anthropology, it's history, it's ethnography, it's political theory. And so he wasn't interested in those boundaries, and he was committed to where the ideas go. He had a number of different graduate students. They're now students of his students. But it also meant, and I think this is something that's really important about his approach, that he wasn't disciplined in the way that senior scholars, you know, tend to become disciplined, in that they become institution builders. And he had no interest, really, in having a school of wolf. I mean, it's an interesting thing that over the last 20 years, one of the things that's emerged is there's a, an entire field of settler colonial studies that did not exist when he was initially writing. And he's certainly part of it. But at the same time, he was, he was very committed to the idea of 
work following the natural trajectory of where the ideas take you and where the political commitments take you, and those two things together, um, including in his own scholarship and the shifts in his own scholarship and in the kinds of advice that he gave to young scholars. It was a commitment to a type of continuous exercise in innovation and intellectual self-discovery. Um, I guess that all sort of connects that generosity <clears throat> and enthusiasm to what you know, he was like to me as a person. So I met him on and off at various conferences. We tended to interact by Skype or on, or on email in between that time. And then he came and spent some time with my family the fall before he died. And you know, as Sari and others have said, what I was really sort of taken by and struck by was that he basically blended into our family. So my partner and I had a small child, three years old, three-year-old daughter. And, you know, he was really aware of the fact that this is a household with a small child. In other words, he was present, you know, for us in the context of just navigating a life that's marked by the kinds of intrusions that, that childcare generate. And he was present for our daughter. You know, he brought, brought her gifts and cards, talked to her about Australia and the work that he did, played with her. Um, he continues to be a kind of live like a real presence in her mind, Uncle Patrick from Australia. And then when he left, um, you know, he ended up sending a copy of his book when it came out, which he was incredibly excited about. And we received it with a dedication. And the dedication that he wrote, which I think is just indicative of the way in which he thought, you know, he connected like a person with, with other folks. He wrote, for my very special niece, Navaz, that's my daughter's name, till I can read your books, with much love, Patrick. Um, we received the book, you know, just a few weeks before he died. And, you know, being here and looking at the book again over the last year, it fills me with a kind of emotion because it speaks to the ways in which I think he was an exemplary scholar and activist, but also a genuine person that wasn't solely identified with what it means to be an academic in the context of these institutions.